If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review, and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Utter, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this. Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Could anything be scarier than a monster who's invisible? For centuries, entire cultures have been decimated by microscopic killers that for most of mankind's existence, we didn't even know existed. Tonight, we're going to share the story of one man who solved the mystery of one virus and in doing so, ended a terror that ravaged a generation. Our hero's name was Albert Bruce Sabin, and the predator he stopped was polio. In the first half of the 20th century, Polio was one of the most feared adversaries in the world. It mostly targeted children, though adults around affected children could catch it as well. It was highly communicable, especially in the warmer months. The major outbreaks would start around Memorial Day and spike in August, before essentially ending for the year around Labor Day. Summer came to be simply called polio season. Millions were affected. Thousands in America died every year. Many, many more were left paralyzed or deformed. Children would end their school year healthy and happy with bright futures ahead and return to school in the fall in wheelchairs and leg braces. 
Polio weakened the chest muscles of some victims to the point that normal breathing became almost impossible. These unfortunate people were forced to spend days, if not weeks, in huge machines called iron lungs. The machines would push the air in and out of their lungs to keep them alive. Hospitals had entire wards devoted to nothing but polio victims. Those who survived often carried the marks of the disease for the rest of their lives. There was little rhyme or reason to how polio worked its way around the globe. For reasons that are still not fully understood, polio would hit an area hard, then disappear and show up in another area. For years, nobody knew how it was being passed from victim to victim. So communities did what they could. They tried to halt the spread by closing swimming pools and bowling alleys and movie theaters. Families with means moved out of crowded cities. The slightest illness in a child would cause parents to panic. Insurance companies even sold polio insurance for newborns. Arguably, America's most famous polio victim was Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was struck by the disease at the age of 39. He spent much of his presidency in a wheelchair. Roosevelt founded the March of Dimes to raise money for developing a vaccine. It was into this world that Albert Bruce Sabin was born, though Albert and his family frankly had far worse problems to confront. He was born in 1906 into a Jewish family in Bialystok, Poland, an industrial city that belonged to the Russian Empire under the Romanovs. It was an era of pogroms, efforts by Russia to exterminate or expel their Jewish citizens. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, you can envision his childhood. Albert's extended family all moved to the United States, but not his family. Not yet. His parents, Jacob and Tilly, and he and his three siblings remained behind to care for an elderly maternal grandmother. They were unable to leave until 1920. By that time, it is believed a full third of the Jewish population of Eastern Europe had fled the continent for their freedom and relative safety in America. Unlike every other immigrant group, the Jewish immigrants who landed in New York tended to stay in New York, as well as the bordering communities of New Jersey. They created little communities that would offer them protection and support. And so the Sabins put down roots in Patterson, New Jersey, Albert's father got a job in the textile industry while the children set out to finish their education. Albert, a teenager, got a crash course in English from a couple of cousins who had immigrated earlier, and then he entered Patterson High School. He graduated in 1923 at the age of 16. Then Albert desperately cast about for money that would allow him to go to college. And his uncle, Sigmund Sidney, came to the rescue. 
Sigmund was a dentist, and he told Albert he'd pay for his education if Albert would study dentistry and join his practice. Albert was content to do so. He enrolled at New York University and earned his Bachelor of Science degree in 1928. Then he signed up for the university's dental school. But Albert found dentistry boring, and the thought of spending the rest of his life looking at other people's teeth depressed him. Also, he now knew where his true passion was. Courses he'd taken in physiology, microbiology, and neurology fascinated him. At the risk of making his uncle angry, Albert changed his major and transferred to New York University's College of Medicine. Later, he would say, I couldn't stand it any longer. My imagination had been caught by medical research. Uncle Sigmund did indeed become angry and cut off all financial aid to his nephew. Fortunately, Albert had found a fan in Dr. William Park, a biologist at the school. Dr. Park helped him obtain various scholarships and fellowships, and Albert picked up odd jobs around area hospitals. Albert made a name for himself while he was still a medical student. He got a job at Harlem Hospital, where he was responsible for figuring out which strain of pneumonia each patient had contracted. The overnight test took many hours, and some patients died before treatment could begin. Albert found a way to reduce the testing time to just three hours, and the procedure was named for him. He published his work and gained some acclaim, and the testing standard still carries his name. In 1931, Albert graduated from New York University with a medical degree and became a naturalized citizen of the U.S. That same year, New York City was in the midst of a terrifying polio epidemic. A summer that youngsters should have spent making cherished childhood memories was filled with dread. Streets were barren as parents forced their youngsters to stay inside. Dr. Park, himself well known for his research into a diphtheria vaccine, urged Albert to focus his efforts on solving the mystery of polio. First, Albert had to do his internship, two years at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Then he went to England for a time to conduct research on viral diseases there before returning to the USA and spending four more years at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
1939, a new chapter in Albert's life brought him to Ohio, where he joined the Children's Hospital Research Foundation at the University of Cincinnati. It was there that he began studying the polio virus in earnest. He had the freedom to study whatever he chose, and he had access to a hospital setting in which to study patients. As a rising star in scientific research, Dr. Sabin brought a lot of prestige to the institution, and he received several grants. Sabin, his wife Sylvia, and their two daughters settled into a home on Rawson Lane in the suburb of Clifton. Unfortunately, just a few months later, Albert had to suspend his research. World War II had broken out, and the U.S. military needed his expertise in disease research to help American troops stationed around the world. He became a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Medical Corps, where he was put on the task of developing a vaccine for Japanese encephalitis, an illness that was stalking the men serving on the Pacific Front. After his tour of duty, it was back to Cincinnati and his research into polio. Albert came to realize that polio was not a respiratory virus at all, but one that lived and multiplied in the intestine. The contagion was not just passed through coughing and sneezing, but also from fecal contamination. That knowledge changed the game. And soon, another researcher, whose name you probably know, was speeding ahead with a vaccine. Jonas Salk had a major breakthrough at the University of Pittsburgh. In 1952, he revealed his vaccine. It was an injection that contained polio viruses that had been killed by formaldehyde. When the dead virus was injected into the muscle, it would trick the body into producing antibodies to fight them. The vaccine proved very effective in preventing most of the complications of polio. On April the 12th, 1955, it was proclaimed that the battle against polio had been won thanks to Jonas Salk's vaccine. But something happened that cast a black shadow over this historic effort. Two defective lots of the vaccine were produced by Cutter Laboratories, a pharmaceutical company in Berkeley, California. The viruses in their vaccine were not dead. Some children were injected with the real thing. Eleven died. A hundred and ninety-two of them were left paralyzed. It was so shocking that the government suspended the vaccination program until they were sure it wouldn't happen again. Now, throughout all of this, Albert never stopped working on his solution. That's because Sabin's idea was completely different and, he believed, superior. He'd been working on an oral polio vaccine not injectable, and his vaccine used the live virus. You see, 
He'd spent years breeding millions of polio viruses, working to find and isolate those viruses whose harmful features were no longer active. These mutant strains of polio did not cause paralysis, but they stimulated antibody production as if they were the dangerous virus. In other words, it appeared Sabin's live virus would more likely give lifelong immunity than Salk's effective but expected temporary protection. Albert's research also demonstrated that the polio virus multiplied and attacked the intestines before it moved to the central nervous system. This suggested that the polio virus could be grown in other tissues besides embryonic brain tissue, which they had been limiting themselves to. The short story here is that his vaccine became easier, cheaper, and more efficient to make, use, and send to developing countries. And it overcame the public sphere of the injections that had led to that incident at Cutter Laboratories. During this battle of the vaccines, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin became bitter professional rivals. There were many intense and public debates over who had made the safest way to combat the disease. And the battle polarized the entire scientific community, which had to choose sides. Interestingly, both men had come from the same background. Jonas Salk was also born to Russian Jews, and Salk and Sabin were just a few years apart in age. Both grew up in the New York Jewish immigrant community and came of age during the Great Depression. They both faced a bigotry that was shockingly prevalent in America. Both men went to NYU's medical school because, at the time, many schools had Jewish quotas and would accept a limited number of Jews, usually very few. NYU was one of the few schools that did not have a quota, and it became a haven for young Jewish medical students like Salk and Sabin. It didn't matter that both men were working to save the world. In the medical profession, according to historians, many of their peers still viewed them as intruders. It is a good thing for the rest of us that they were not discouraged. Sabin finalized his live vaccine at the Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, and he tested it on 10,000 monkeys and 160 chimpanzees. Then he gave it to himself, to his daughters, and to some of his colleagues. In late 1954, Albert carried out the first clinical trials on young volunteers that had been recruited from among the inmates of the federal prison in Chillicothe, Ohio. Thirty prisoners were selected and paid $25 each, as well as having a little time shaved off their sentences, in return for taking the live virus vaccine. 
the vaccine was delivered in a glass of milk, and over the course of a few weeks, their blood chemistry was analyzed for antibodies. In every case, the prisoner developed polio antibodies without becoming ill. Still, because of that Cutter Laboratories incident, the U.S. government was resistant to large-scale field testing. Fortunately, other countries had no qualms. Between 1955 and 1960, the oral vaccine was given to at least 100 million people in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, Singapore, Mexico, and the Netherlands. Albert's partnership with the Soviet Union, in particular, was a great example of how science could rise above the height of the Cold War. The results were an overwhelming success. Finally, the U.S. approved Sabin's vaccine for America. On Sunday, April 24, 1960, more than 20,000 children in Cincinnati and the surrounding suburbs received the Sabin oral live virus polio vaccine in its first public distribution in the United States. It was an event that has come to be called Sabin Sunday. Within two weeks, over 180,000 of the region's children between the ages of three months to six years received the vaccine. Cincinnati essentially became the first American city to eradicate the virus. Here's a fun piece of trivia for you. Sabin's vaccine was usually given to children on a lump of sugar. That fact inspired the Sherman brothers to write their Mary Poppins song with the refrain, Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. There were still people who needed to be convinced, though. There was considerable opposition from the March of Dimes Foundation, which supported Jonah Salk's injection because it relied on a dead virus. But in the end, it was Sabin's preparation that was adopted by the World Health Organization and became the mainstay of the worldwide vaccination campaign that eradicated polio in many countries. Both Sabin and Jonas Salk chose not to patent their vaccines, foregoing any financial benefit in order to keep the price low. Albert said in an interview, It's my gift to all the world's children. The last case of polio in the United States was reported in 1979. In 1994, the World Health Organization certified the eradication of polio from North and South America, and in 2000, from 36 countries in the Western Pacific region, including China and Australia. In 2002, Europe was certified as polio-free, followed by the entire Southeast Asia region in 2014. On August the 25th, 2020, Africa was declared polio-free, with one small exception. Today, the virus only exists in two parts of the globe, 
northern Nigeria, a country in West Africa, and the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan in the Middle East. Now, Sabin retired from the University of Cincinnati in 1969 after 30 years there. He went to Israel for a few years to serve as president of a science institute there, then returned to the U.S. to continue as a research professor, first in South Carolina and then Bethesda, Maryland. His personal life was a complicated one. He was married three times. His first marriage to Sylvia Tregillis of Illinois was in 1935 and produced two daughters, Amy and Deborah. That marriage lasted 31 years until Sylvia's tragic suicide in 1966 at the age of 56. They were still living in Cincinnati at the time, and news reports said she was found dead in the family home with a bag over her head, secured by a rubber band. She was under a doctor's care for depression. Her suicide was big news. Albert Sabin was world famous, after all. Albert married a year later to Jane Warner, a Cincinnati woman who was divorced from a well-known real estate developer in the area. The wedding took place from his hospital bed because he was being treated for 20 bites from his pet dog. That marriage lasted four years before ending in divorce. Albert met his third wife, Heloisa, a Brazilian journalist, when he was 66 years old. They were wed in 1972. In 1983, Albert developed calcification of the cervical spine, which caused paralysis and intense pain. During his hospital stay, he received get-well wishes from more than 100,000 people, many of whom thanked him for his role in ridding America of polio. His wife recalled reading many of the cards to her husband while he was in the hospital. When I read them to him, I cry, she said, all the people thanking him, the letters from school children. When I read those letters to him, I can hardly continue. The letters moved Albert as well. I can't even tell you the feeling it gives me, he said. It makes me feel that what I did was somehow worthwhile. Albert's personal experience with a debilitating illness inspired him to study ways to alleviate pain. Deeply committed to his profession, Albert never stopped researching. He once said, A scientist who is also a human being cannot rest when knowledge which might be used to reduce suffering rests on the shelf. Sabin's own condition was successfully treated by surgery in 1992 when he was 86 years old, but he only lived one more year. He died of heart failure while in the hospital of Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. on March the 3rd, 1993. 
That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.